Scripture this morning is Luke 23, verses 26 through 49, and it's on page 1641 in your pew Bibles. Luke 23, 26 through 49. The crucifixion. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place of the skull, there they crucified. There they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who mocked him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. I'm sure many of you remember the day that President John F. Kennedy died. And some years later, when Martin Luther King Jr. died. I remember the day Robert Kennedy died. And I remember the day that the Challenger astronauts died in the explosion. And I remember the day my mother died. I remember the day these people died, not because I was physically there, but because of the reports that I received from others 
who were there. Some of those reports were very vivid, very powerful. They were so real that, well, I remember them as if I experienced them. We have a report today in chapter 23 of Luke's biography of Jesus, a, a report of his death. Now, Luke is not an eyewitness to the death of Jesus Christ. Some of the biographies of Jesus are written by eyewitnesses like John, but Luke, he's a physician. He is a historian. And he learned about all these things later, and he did his homework, and he wrote an account. Now, although all these events have been predicted generations before they happened, the day Jesus Christ dies is a day full of surprises. Let's talk about those surprises. Let's consider what they mean for us today in the 21st century. The day Jesus dies is certainly a surprise for a man named Simon. Simon is from North Africa, from Cyrene, or as we call it today, Tripoli. He comes to Jerusalem for the Jewish Passover. And given the distance that he had to travel, it is probably a journey of a lifetime. And so it's also a surprise of a lifetime when he stumbles across this crucifixion uh, parade. Normally, this would be a brief delay as Roman soldiers uh, escort this crucifixion party. Four Roman soldiers escort Jesus to the place of execution. But then something surprising happens. Jesus crumbles under the weight of the cross. And remember, he has been flogged and whipped. He's been beaten and it just becomes too much. He falls right in front of Simon. And because Jerusalem is an occupied city, Roman law gives all the soldiers the right to enlist anyone into their service. So with Jesus laying on the ground, a Roman soldier takes his spear and puts the blade of it on the shoulder of Simon, the closest person. And now drafted into service, he's forced to pick up the cross and carry it. Now Luke says nothing more about Simon. But in Mark's gospel account, chapter 15, verse 21, he writes a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, is forced to carry the cross. It's interesting that his sons are mentioned by Mark. Mark knows this man, and he knows what happens to him after this incident. If we turn to Romans 16, verse 13, we find mention of Rufus and his mother. Scholars assume that is the son of Simon. If we put some pieces together, we can see that Simon turn, returns home. He tells his wife, he tells his son what happens, and eventually Rufus and Alexander and, and uh, his wife... Simon's wife become believers. And somehow they make connections with the missionary Paul. None of that would have happened if Simon is not pressed into service to carry the cross. There's something profoundly symbolic here. There's some, something symbolic in terms of carrying the cross and how Jesus describes discipleship. 
Earlier in Luke, Jesus said in chapter 9, if you want to follow me, you must say no to yourself. You must take up your cross every day and follow me. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for me, you will save it. You will find it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world and lose your very soul? To follow Jesus is to say no to our self-centered, selfish ambitions and goals. And not to say no to ourselves and not to take up the cross is to lose everything. We take up the cross to die to our sinful nature. To be a Christian is to live each day for Jesus Christ as if we died with Him on the cross. And now the only life in us is His life flowing through us. And the astonishing surprise is that this kind of surrendered life results in the most rewarding life anyone can imagine. The surprising paradox is if you try to save and preserve your life for yourself and your own pleasure and your own ego, you end up losing everything. But if you will let go of your life and surrender it to Jesus, you get it back again with joy. That's the first surprise. A second surprise as Jesus is freed from the weight of the cross and continues his journey to his place of execution, he passes a group of women who are crying and mourning for him. They cry out not because they know him, but because these women are professional mourners. They're not unsympathetic, but they are women who come out when men are crucified because the families of the victims are ashamed. And they're afraid. They're afraid to publicly cry over their deaths. The surprise in this situation is Jesus stops and he prophesies over them. He tells them, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. There's a day coming when, when women who are barren and have no children will be called blessed. Jesus is referring to a prophecy that he himself made in Luke 19 where he wept over the city of Jerusalem and he prophesies that within a generation the city will be crushed and destroyed. And it happens. In 70 AD the Romans seized the city and completely destroyed Jerusalem killing most of the population. This too is symbolic. It's symbolic of what happens to those who deliberately reject the Savior. God in His love in Christ becomes one of us. He offers us a gift. And He waits for our response. But the offer is limited. It's limited to our lifetimes. The biggest surprise, however, on Good Friday comes to the executioners. These tough veteran soldiers who many times have crucified other men by nailing them to, to wooden crosses. And even as 
they, they crucified scream and suffer. The soldiers, they sit at the feet of the cross and they play games. They roll dice for their clothes. They're desensitized to the curses and threats and pleas for mercy. The surprise for them is after driving the nails through the feet and hands of Jesus and lifting the cross up and then dropping it into its socket, which would dislocate all the bones in Christ's body, they hear him say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now that's enough to move the hearts of the toughest soldiers. It's no wonder in verse 47, the centurion, the commander, seeing what had happened, says, praise God and said, surely this was a righteous man. And the forgiveness of Jesus is still a surprise. It's still a surprise for us today. Are you surprised by the forgiveness of Jesus? His forgiveness of your failures and flaws. He knows our worst sins. And yet when he, we bring them to him, he cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And his heart still seeks to forgive. But there's more. There's also a surprise for the religious, the Jewish priests. You see, at the center of first century Jewish worship is the temple. It was a magnificent building. It was a place of gathering and offering sacrifices. And for the Jewish people, the, the temple is where God literally resides. It's where he lives on earth. Now, in the, in the temple, there are these outer courts, and anybody can come into the outer courts, but things get increasingly exclusive as you move towards the, mental, the middle and the front. So much so <clears throat> that eventually there's one small place in the temple called the Holy of Holies. The holiest of holies. And this room is covered by a huge curtain and only one person can go in that room one day a year. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And on that day, the high priest goes behind the curtain and he gets to see something no one else could ever see the holy residence of God. He then offers a sacrifice seeking the forgiveness for the entire nation of Israel. And they actually would tie a rope around his ankle or around his waist before he went in because they were concerned that in the, then the awe or the excitement of the moment he might have a heart attack and die. And then they could pull him out because no one else was supposed to go in. The surprise on Good Friday is that those priests on duty in the temple witness this thick curtain covering the Holy of Holies just ripping apart from top to bottom. And it's open wide so everybody can see it's just totally exposed. They are seeing something no one is supposed to see. Never again will there be a curtain that keeps us separated from God. Never again does a priest need to represent everyone because now Jesus is our high priest. 
He tears the curtain and gives us direct access to our holy God. The final surprise occurs on the cross. The interaction between the two thieves who are being crucified with Jesus. One of the criminals insults Jesus. He mocks him, saying, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself, save us. But the criminal on the other side rebukes the first criminal. Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. His question, don't you fear God, is a good question. Because, friends, sooner or later it becomes everyone's question. We can live a lifetime thinking and behaving as if we have everything together, we've got everything under control, but eventually we close in on our own death. And we're forced to face the reality of our weakness and face our sinfulness and our guilt and the, and the reality of God. And then we reach this point where we will be struck with the realization that we are not in control and that it is God who is going to judge our eternal destiny. It is God who makes the rules, not us. We set them all our lives, but at the moment of death, there's no time for self-righteous defense. It is a time to fear God and to wonder about your eternal destiny. Of course, it's far better to resolve such questions and issues before the moment of death for none of us knows when that moment will be. For the man condemned on the cross, time is running out. Regardless of what he had done, in the end, the one criminal did fear God. He realizes that there's a judgment after death and it will be determined by his creator. No human court and not his own standards. And it's a fear that is necessary for anyone seeking salvation. Like the convict on the far side who insults Jesus, this criminal came to the cross with some advanced knowledge of who Jesus is. They'd heard about him, maybe even heard him speak. They knew what he could do. The criminal understands Jesus is no criminal. At some point, he realizes Jesus is God's Son and is returning to his Father. And so he believes. With the fear of God and faith in Jesus, he asks, he says, Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's requesting salvation. There's a strong contrast here between the criminal who mocks Jesus by asking him to save us physically and the one who asks Jesus, to save him spiritually. All the ingredients are here. He fears God. He believes Jesus. He seeks salvation. These are the ingredients for everyone who wants to inherit God's kingdom and God's grace. We must seriously ask if we fear God, if we trust in Jesus, 
and if we seek Him. And here's the good news. When we do, Jesus says, yes. Yes. Just as He said to the thief on the cross, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. He says yes because that's why He's there on the cross. He's being crucified for this very purpose. To save and to promise heaven to all who ask. There are many surprises on the day Christ dies. And God still surprises us in our Good Fridays. In the midst of our sufferings and our pain and our guilt and our shame. On noon Good Friday... It becomes dark, dark as night. The sun disappears behind the thickest of clouds that anyone had ever seen. And it makes sense. It makes sense that as Jesus, the creator of the universe, dies, that the world becomes dark. The people of Jerusalem know when it becomes dark at noon that God is doing something. He's doing something different, something special. It is the darkest moment in human history. The murder of the Son of God. But in these three hours from noon until three o'clock in the afternoon, something happens. The Bible says Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin for us. In the midst of the darkest hour of human history, God is providing reconciliation, redemption, recreation. He removes all obstacles to a relationship and an eternity with Him. And today He still brings salvation. And He brings it in our darkest hours. The question for us is the same question that the thief Ask the other thief, do you fear God? For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The wisdom of salvation. The wisdom of seeking and following with faith. The crucified one. Would you pray with me? Living God, we, we, when we fear you and trust you, we have nothing else to fear in life. And when we don't fear you, then we have everything to fear. We ask today for a godly awe of you and a fear that will lead us to faith and redemption and that will motivate us and energize us to follow you. Lord, I have no doubt there are people here today who are discouraged, who are asking questions, who are wounded. And Lord, just as that thief did, we come and we turn, Lord, remember me today. 
And we thank you that you do. Bring your salvation. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we will take our morning offering as we sing.